Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 26th, we are studying Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin in the midst of all the false testimony about him and all the anger against him, Jesus makes the good and faithful confession of who he is. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jacob Dandy. Pastor Dandy serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California. Pastor Dandy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's a blessing to be here. As we get started, let's talk context, Pastor Dandy. We're getting toward the end of Mark chapter 14. What do we need to know going into this scene from Holy Week? Yeah, so um, uh, this is really kind of the the beginning of Jesus's passion here. Uh, he he has now uh, been with the disciples. He's instituted the supper. Uh, he's prayed his priestly prayer. They've gone up to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus prays to the Lord, uh, "Thy will be done." Uh, he has been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested, uh, and now he's being brought to this first stage of his trial. Um, and as we then look at this, uh, we see as this trial begins, uh, he's brought before the high priest and the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. Uh, and when we think about the Sanhedrin, this is really the deliberative and judicial body of the Jews. This is, uh, and, and throughout history, the, the Sanhedrin waxes and wanes in its uh, authority and power over the Jews in Jerusalem and throughout the, the um, uh, areas where the Jews resided. Um, but here we kind of find them at one of their high points of authority. Uh, they had the authority to try someone. They had the authority to even condemn someone to death. Uh, but uh, they, under Roman rule, don't have the authority to carry out the sentence. So the high priest was to preside over this assembly. He could call witnesses. He could uh, um, put pressure over different groups to, to get his desired effect, but he could not reverse or overturn the ruling of this assembly. So Jesus is being brought to trial over the, the true rulers of the Jewish people at that time. But as we think about this, as this is the very much the deliberative body, this is the ruling body over all Jewish affairs, something to take note about is um, the circumstances of this trial, the timing, the placing, and all of these other things. It's first of all, this trial is at night, which was strictly forbidden for the Sanhedrin to uh, assemble and convene over any issue uh, at nighttime. Um, it's also most likely not comprised of the entire assembly that would have been there since it is in the middle of the night. 
something else to take note of is that the Jews are not arresting him because of a specific charge. One of the things that the uh, um, that the Sanhedrin required was that if a person was to be arrested and brought to trial, trial they had to first be charged or indicted uh, for an offense. Uh, the trial had to be a trial over a specific offense. But here we see uh, that they are trying to find the offense that Jesus commits during the trial. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so here we see Jesus is brought to the Sanhedrin. He's brought to the uh, residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. And uh, he's standing trial for absolutely nothing. And uh, a commentator um, wrote about this. He said, this whole thing is legally frightful uh, in view of what the Sanhedrin's procedures, their rules, and their laws really dictated uh, from the Talmud and the Mishnah, what the Sanhedrin was supposed to do. Uh, And so Jesus is uncharged. He's unindicted. He's illegally arrested. And now Jesus stands trial at an illegal hour before an illegally convened court. Um, uh, and uh, we're going to see how far uh, this this whole proceeding goes uh, in an effort to seek their ultimate goal, and that is the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think we have a, an expression in... In English, kangaroo court, something like that, yeah. maybe, is, is what's going on yeah. here, it seems? Uh, yeah, very much so. Uh, this is this is very much unprecedented. This is very much a uh, uh, quickly thrown together trial. Um, at, at one point, uh, one of the commentators says that uh, this really actually isn't something you can consider a trial, but it's more of a private murder. Uh, and I think I think that's a very good description uh, description of what we're going to be reading about, uh, as it's it's almost unnerving uh, reading about this this whole effort that goes forth. Uh, how many things they bypass? Uh, how many uh, rules and even laws of God from the Book of Deuteronomy that they ignore? Uh, in order to get their desired goal, um, because the, the, you know they 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 already in their minds have a a goal. They already have a verdict that they're trying to achieve, and that is uh, uh, guilt with the penalty of murder mm. or with the penalty of death. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and in the midst of it all, we'll see Jesus' faithfulness shine through as he makes the good confession. So we're in Mark 14, beginning yeah. at verse 53 this morning. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the middle and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, 
Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. That's the text for today, Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. Pastor Danny, the text begins that they led Jesus to the high priest. Remember, in the previous text, he's been seized by this crowd that was led by people from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And here, these chief priests, elders, scribes, they all come together. You called this the the Sanhedrin. The word council comes up in verse 55. Tell us about these three groups that Mark says are coming together as the Sanhedrin for Jesus' trial. Yeah, so we we have the priest, the elders, and the scribes all coming together. Uh, and uh, if you if you really look, in, in many ways, these three groups probably uh, would have typically been theological opponents. Um, uh, when you think about the the priestly class, um, uh, and certainly Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. Um, they, they would have comprised uh, the Sadducees, and they would have been part of the group of the Sadducees. Um, uh, the elders, uh, those, those would have been uh, those, those learned men from the, from the groups of the Pharisees. Um, uh, and then you have the scribes. These would have been the uh, legal scholars of, of the time, right? These would have been the Jewish legal scholars. And um, in, in some respects, quite a few of them had different um, political, theological, and philosophical um, aims and, and viewpoints when it came to their, their practice of the Jewish faith. Um, but two things to note about this, and the, the first thing to note is that uh, this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Just even in the Gospel of Mark, but in all of the Gospels, Jesus kind of um, has this refrain going throughout his teaching ministry. Um, uh, you know, in chapter 8, verse 31, for example, and actually three times in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we hear Jesus say that um, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and then be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and then be killed, and after three days rise again. Uh, he repeats that in chapter 9, uh, and then he repeats that again in chapter 10, as he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests, the scribes, uh, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so first we, we notice and see here that, that this is all happening according to what Jesus said. Um, now Jesus is being brought before uh, this, these three groups of people um, uh, to stand trialed. And you can see that maybe as they were theological opponents in some ways, uh, they can agree on one thing and that, that Jesus is a problem and he needs to die. We also see that um, in chapter 12, um, as Jesus has his disputations uh, in the temple, uh, that uh, 
each of these groups is dealt with by Jesus, and each of these groups is um, very much humbled by Jesus. Um, first, we see the Pharisees, who would have uh, kind of been associated with the elders um, uh, in this group. Uh, they come to ask Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, and Jesus gives this wonderful teaching, oh, whose image do you see on the coin? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God's. And, and really, this is kind of a way of Jesus even calling into the question to the scribe, or the, to these Pharisees, well, whose image do you bear? Um, uh, uh, who are your, who do you belong to, right? Um, and he, he really humbles them in that way. You know, the Pharisees had this maybe uh, nationalistic cause of, uh, of being freed from the Romans, and yet here they, um, they're humbled and, and, and taught by Jesus. Uh, and then you finally see, next you see the Sadducees, um, who are associated with the priest, uh, come and question Jesus about the resurrection. And, you know, Jesus is as really bold in answering their question about the resurrection. It's not for the reason, uh, that, that reason that you're wrong, but because you neither know the scriptures nor you know the power of God. Uh, and, and so here Jesus, you know, just, openly says, you, you deny the resurrection because you deny what the scriptures say about the resurrection of the dead, and you do not understand that God has the power to raise the dead. So he humbles them. And then finally, we have a scribe come and ask Jesus about the greatest commandment. Uh, and uh, um, uh, Jesus, once again, uh, demonstrates a knowledge even greater than the scribes. Uh, as he answers him. Uh, and so in all three cases, Jesus demonstrates a fuller knowledge of Scripture. In all three cases, Jesus silences his opponents. And I think really in all three cases here, uh, Jesus uh, probably uh, uh, deepens these groups' resolve to get rid of him. And, and this really probably tells us a lot about uh, the doctrine of these men. Uh, who are putting Jesus to trial. Because, uh, you know, false doctrine is often very tolerant of other false doctrines. And so each of these groups has their false doctrine, either their, their pride or their self-righteousness or their um, uh, blending of their political agendas with the faith. You know, all of these things kind of work and revolve around each other. There's one thing false doctrine cannot tolerate, and that is the truth. And so we have these three groups who would typically stand at odds against each other as theological opponents, now coming together to condemn the man who is the truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life. They want to condemn Jesus. You know, um, in, in John chapter 8, Jesus uh, um, uh, really condemns uh, the the scribes and the Pharisees by saying that their father is the devil because they are boldly defending the great lie of the devil. Uh, and the great lie of the devil is that Jesus is not the Christ, that Jesus is not the Lord, but that is the truth that frees us. That is the truth that lends to eternal life. Uh, that is the truth that you and I, we both believe in. Uh, but they find this truth so offensive that they're, they're willing to bend every rule and compromise, even with their enemies, to, to rid themselves of Jesus. 
We've noted these unlikely alliances previously in Mark's gospel. In one of the accounts you mentioned, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians who actually come together. Mm -hmm. And those two groups, and they asked Jesus the question about the taxes, which is a question that they probably would have disagreed how to answer. But they came together at that moment to attack Jesus. And I've I've called it something, or or trying to, I don't know, I've got a good term for it. This is, I think, a good example of the anti-church or the anti-body of Christ. And and what I mean by that is, as, as Christians, we know that the closest bond that we have with another human being is the bond that we share within his church. When we are connected to Christ mm-hmm. and we are connected to those who are in Christ, that is the strongest bond that we have. You know, I mean, think about how Jesus talks about earlier in the gospel about how those who are his his mother and brother and sisters, those are the ones who do his will, that this is the, the closest bond that we have. And regardless of excuse me, whatever differences you and I might share otherwise, that bond which unites us most closely is that bond we have in Christ. I think Mm -hmm. it's the exact same thing happening just instead of being united in Christ, it's being united against Christ. This this anti-church, this anti-body of Christ that we see really coming to its fruition here in this trial of Jesus and onward from this moment in the rest of, of the events of Jesus' passion, that regardless of whatever differences they may or may not have had, the most important thing that they share is the fact that they hate Christ and they hate his mm-hmm. truth and and they will stand together in that above all these other differences and it's a really it's a frightening thing to see in the in and again this anti-church or anti-body of Christ which hopefully uh, from the positive way of seeing it, it it heightens the joy that we have together in the body of Christ that we are united in that truth but i think all of that is to say uh, you know what what you're pointing out here this is something that we've seen elsewhere in in mark and it's really uh, i mean it becomes quite frightening as to the way it plays out with the hatred and the the just the complete anger that these men have toward Jesus in this text, uh, the the consequences of this false doctrine and unbelief and what that what that does to these people in this text is is rather alarming and disturbing to see as as we will talk about. Now, before we get there, Pastor Danny, and before Mark moves on with Jesus' trial, he makes brief mention of. Peter in verse 54. He's going to pick that up again in the text that we'll look at on Monday's show. But for our purposes today, just take us into what Mark says about Peter here in verse 54. Yeah, and so we're, we're told that um, Peter, and we, we know from uh, the other Gospels, John also uh, is following Jesus, uh, and that he's made it into the courtyard. He, he's made it into this assembly. Um, and this really is to, to set the stage for what will happen after this section with Peter. But what we can note is that Peter witnesses all of this, and, and it really terrifies him, right? Um, you know, he has no reason to fear, but here he, he is driven by great fear. Um, he's driven by uh, this terror of seeing his Lord brought to t- trial, seeing his Lord falsely accused. And that, that's what the level, devil loves to do. Um, the devil loves to use fear uh, to work apostasy. You know, um, he, he, that's his great tool, uh, the, that he, he builds on fear. He builds on terror. Um, and that even works in, in even subtle ways in our modern day day and age, right? You, you think about 
maybe why uh, some people choose not to associate with the church. Well, um, I'm afraid that it would make me culturally unpopular. I'm afraid that I might be judged. Uh, uh, and he, he ratchets it up every level. I'm, I'm afraid that uh, I'm going to suffer persecution. I'm afraid that uh, I might be hurt. And here, Peter, he, he certainly has this fear that um, uh, as Jesus is brought to trial, well, he's one of Jesus's inner circle. He's part of the um, close following of Jesus. Uh, and, and he's afraid. Right? He's afraid to see this happen with his Lord and his Master. And in the midst of all this, though, we, we remember that as Jesus is going through his passion, well, Peter is following. Uh, and we see that he's following out of love for Jesus. He wants to see what comes of this. But as love draws Peter, uh, Peter fear keeps him at a distance. Uh, fear keeps him quiet. Uh, fear is what works is denial that we're going to, you're going to have an opportunity to look at in a, in a later episode. And we see that after Jesus restores Peter in John 21, uh, that fear, uh, doesn't overcome him again. Peter will die to confess Jesus after this, but now, uh, now is a time of fear. Now is a time of anguish. Now is a time for, um, uh, evil to have its heyday. And, and we really see this happening in these proceedings. And, um, it terrifies Peter. And, and to be honest with you, when I look at this text, it, it terrifies me in certain ways. It's, it's terrifying to see, uh, uh, the world's hatred, but it's also terrifying in, in a certain sense because, uh, in a way, you know, this text really shines a mirror on my own sinful flesh because, you know, uh, we see that the, the anti-church is willing to, um, disregard any scruples, any rules, any laws to meet its gain. But, well, what makes our sinful flesh any different, right? Um, uh, what, what will our sinful flesh do to get what it wants? What will our sinful flesh reject and might go up? What will our sinful flesh do and who would our sinful flesh hurt um, to, to get the pleasure that it desires, to get the gratification that it loves? Mm-hmm. Um, and so here in Peter, we see that, you know, he's standing watching this firsthand and it's terrifying. And even for us watching this and reading this uh, play out in the gospel here, it's it's quite unnerving. And it, it can cause you to fear, but in the midst of all of it, we know that there is no reason to fear uh, because we we see we see Jesus there, and Jesus is there because he wants to be. Mm. He chooses to be there, and we'll we'll see that as we continue on. Yeah, I mean Peter's Peter's presence here. I I think you're right to to use that as a a spot for some self-reflection. You know, I mean, Peter, and he'll come up again in the next text, and not to not to, to spoil too much, although we, you know, Jesus has told us what is going to happen with Peter already. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think Mark invites us to put these two trials side by side, just like he does. On the mm-hmm. one hand, you've got Jesus' trial and how he does here, and then in the next text that we'll look at, there's Peter's trial, you know, and it's, it's our, the way you were talking about it, you know, Peter is, is afraid— 
he's next. Well, the reality is Peter is going to be on trial, not the same kind of trial, but there is a trial for yeah. Peter coming. How will he fare? And and Mark's starting that account for us at this moment here at the beginning of this text. He's going to finish it later, which is something that Mark often does. We've seen him do that where he'll he'll split up a story like that. And what is put in the middle, it invites us to to reflect upon what's on the outside. And and what we're going to see here in the middle is this complete faithfulness of Jesus in the midst mm-hmm. of all the evil and hatred and anger that's attacking him. He will remain faithful. And, and what's just astounding is that he's faithful for the sake of Peter, who will actually deny Jesus three times, and for the sake of these men who are heaping this anger and hatred upon him, that's why Jesus is faithful in the midst of all that. And and yeah. I think I think we'll pick more of that up on the other side of the break. We'll take our break a little bit early here so that we don't have to break that conversation up. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. Taking a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 26th. We're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. We have Pastor Jacob Dandy with us. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Tarabella, California. Pastor Dandy, prior to the break, we were talking about this brief appearance of Peter in our text. He will come up in the next text more as we see his trial, talking a little bit about how Peter's presence here invites us to reflect a bit on on our own trials, our own faithfulness to Jesus. I, I had said the last thing, didn't give you a chance to respond. If you want to, anything to add there with Peter's presence. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, you mentioned there uh, that, that having Peter there invites us to kind of imagine ourselves there. And, you know, we, we think about um, our, our goal as Christians is to, to live out our lives in faith. It's, it's to die in faith. And, you know, you know, it got me thinking just a minute ago here about, you know, what if I was under Peter's trial, right? Um, and that's, that's a sobering thing to think about. You know, what if, what if I'm like Peter in this assembly that is hating my Lord? Or, uh, you know, what if I'm the guy or the, the soon-to-be martyr with a gun to his head or, or standing amongst the martyrs throughout the ages? Um, will I be faithful? You know, um, and that's a, that's a difficult question to, to ask, and it's a, that's a sobering question to ask. Uh, but I think the thing that we, we reflect on here the most is that Jesus is, um, and we're going to see the, the faithfulness of Jesus can continually uh, play out, um, uh, and it's, it's, just, it's this beautiful thing that has, has this really unnerving and, and heartbreaking and hard thing to read plays out. Uh, there, there's, there's this joy for the Christian. 
because of what uh, Jesus accomplishes. It's this uh, uh, this painful joy of uh, watching Jesus suffer, but knowing it's out of love for you. Uh, and that's that's such a profound gift to to meditate on and contemplate as we read this text. Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm reminded again of Saint Paul's words in Second Timothy two, where where he's talking about you know, if we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But then this beautiful close, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny yeah. himself. And I mean, you just, you see that playing out in in what happens to Jesus in this text, in his trial. So that trial continues in verse 55. We've got the Sanhedrin together, the chief priests, the whole council. They're looking for this testimony. As you said, they've already convened the trial. They've arrested him without really any indictment. Now they actually got to find some kind of evidence. I I find it somewhat humorous the way this in a in a sad way, but there's there's almost mm-hmm. an element of humor as to how this because they're they're looking for this testimony against Jesus. They know they really don't have any. They've got all these people speaking up. Nobody's actually agreeing though. It's it's almost I mean there's I, I there's just at least a little bit of humor there, I think. Take us into this scene where they're looking for all this evidence against Jesus. Yeah, so um we we see that they are seeking testimony, it says, um, against Jesus to put him to death, but they find none. The, and so it says the whole chief priest now the chief priests and this whole council, they're they're trying to gin up this testimony. They're trying to call forth witnesses. Um and and it's just not working. It, you know, some bear false witness against Jesus saying, We heard him say or did this, but they cannot find any and they don't agree. Right. Uh, and it's so important that you you don't just have a solitary witness come up and said, oh, Jesus said this or Jesus did this. Right. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 19 says that it has to be on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses um, that the one who is to die shall be put to death and the person shall not be put to death on the evidence of just one witness. Right. Um, and not only that. It's important that the witnesses agree, right? Um, there's a, an apocryphal thing that that dated around this time, and it's called the the trial of Susanna. It's a it's kind of this apocryphal uh, addition to the end of the book of Daniel, which means that um, it's it's not uh, uh, a legitimate thing uh, in the scriptures. It was added on to kind of uh, create some sort of moral lesson. Uh, and just to kind of summarize that, there was this, this beautiful woman in the exile named uh, Susanna, uh, and two of these elders of the Jews uh, fall madly in love with her, and they um, uh, 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 come into her abode when she's bathing uh, and profess their love to her and try to seduce her, and she says no. Uh, and so out of spite, these two men... Uh, um, accuse her of adultery and they they both stand up in the council and accuse her of adultery and she's she's about to be condemned uh and in this apocryphal account daniel steps in and he says well just just give me a minute and he he interviews two of the men separately and he finds out that their 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 reports of what happened don't agree uh in the slightest sense they're just both saying they caught her in adultery but they don't give any details that match up and so uh daniel then uh declares this to the crowd or to the assembly and then um uh uh, uh you know 
uh, exonerates this woman, and then these two men are put to death. Uh, and that was written to to kind of exemplify this this concept that uh, you can't just have two witnesses willy-nilly step up, but they have to agree in their testimony of what's going on. And and so uh, here they see that they they can't find any testimony that agrees that Jesus has done something worthy of death. The whole Sanhedrin is looking for this testimony. And this is just another uh, example of their complicity in all of this, that um, at any point in time, um, any, any honest man in this group could have stood up and said, this, this, this really needs to stop. But uh, they keep on going. Uh, but they can't find a legal and valid testimony against Jesus. And even though that's the fact, no one is afraid to speak against Jesus. They really should have been, right? Um, just if that, that whole account of the uh, apocryphal account of the trial of Susanna, what happens to the two men that bear false witness against this Jewish woman? Well, they're put to death for bearing this false witness. But they, they keep trying, but they can't find something uh, that sticks, which once again, you know, we see this is not a trial. This is a private murder. Um, they're, they're, they already have a goal in mind, and they're going to hear whatever testimony they can find, to, and they're going to throw as much mud at Jesus to see what can stick at him. Um, and then finally, uh, in verse 57, we see an actual charge come against Jesus that the court can use, and, and that's the, the statement about uh, the destruction of the temple. And they're, they're misquoting Jesus, actually, and what he says in John chapter 2. Um, as Jesus says, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up again. And they, they accuse Jesus of saying that he would destroy the temple. But Jesus doesn't actually say that he will destroy the temple. He says that they will destroy this temple. He says, you, right? That's the... Um, um, kind of uh, unmentioned, you know, uh, subject or, or object there, or subject there is that that you will destroy this temple. Um, he's saying that they're the ones. Now th- that we have to note the irony here is that as Jesus is talking about the temple of his body, that's what they will destroy, uh, and their charge against Jesus. Um, uh, is that he claimed that he will destroy the temple, and and really um, he 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 doesn't. Uh, but they will destroy the temple of the body of Christ because uh, the body of Christ is is really where the wholeness of God at that moment is dwelling. Uh, that we have the second person of the Trinity made flesh, uh, and and that they wants to destroy the temple of his body. Um, but they, they like this charge against Jesus. They, they say he's claiming to destroy the temple, or he's going to, because uh, with that, the Romans might get on board. Because the, the Romans didn't like the destruction of sacred sites. Um, uh, and and the, the Romans really were supposed to be um, preserving and guarding the temple in a sense. Um, um, and as part of their agreement to live with the Jews. Um and so uh, they they have this 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 charge that they can press against Jesus. This is a false witness against Jesus in, in every respect. Um, but this is one that maybe they can get to stick, and they can get the Romans on board with that charge as well. 
Uh, and so to try and, and push this a little further, um, Caiaphas then tries to get Jesus to speak because they, they really want an admission on Jesus's part. They want Jesus to say something that they can twist, just like um, they're twisting his words from John chapter 2. Um, so that they can they can get some sort of charge to stick against Jesus, so that they can put him to death. Mm. They're they're working really hard. <laughs> yeah, the the high priest. It says you know he he hears this testimony from Jesus, and and verse fifty nine. You know even this even their testimony about this doesn't agree. So the high priest thinking, okay, let's see if I can get Jesus to say something. Jesus is is silent at this moment, but it, I think it's more than just, he's not going to incriminate himself. Why, why is Jesus silent here? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you get this image of uh, Isaiah 53, right? Um, where uh, we have uh, the, uh, we have the, the sheep before it's shearers is silent, right? And, here, just give me a second. I'm going to pull up that whole passage and, and read it in its context because it, it really um, fills out uh, what what's happening here. But um, in Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 and following, it says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, right? And so here we, we have this, this passage from the, the servant song of Isaiah, this, this suffering servant. And we see that as the Sanhedrin is flexing its muscles before Jesus, um, we see that they're not in control of this situation. Jesus is there because he wants to be. See, Jesus could have spoken a word at any moment and silenced all of them. We, we, we see that he had done that before um, in chapter 12, as each of these groups comes independently trying their best to, to silence Jesus, to disprove Jesus, to discredit him. And even then, Jesus could have called down legions of angels to come to his offense. He, he could strike them all dumb and cause them all to fall upon the ground. He, he did that in his arrest, as we read in John chapter uh, 18, uh, as Jesus is arrested. And they, he says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And what happened? They all fall to the ground, dumb, deaf, and mute, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't do any of this. He allows this to happen. He wants this to happen. This is why he was born. This is why he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt. He's come to die for the sins of the world. Uh, And you have to imagine, though, how completely irritating the silence must have been to Caiaphas. Um, It it must have been actually quite, you know, and, and... 
in maybe a descriptive, thoughtful way, it must have been a very loud silence. As you can imagine that all this shouting and pointing with testimony after testimony coming forth in this illegal uh, trial, and now for the first time, there's silence. Um, And, you know, preachers, we we like to employ silence um, from time to time. You know, uh, when when a pastor preaches a, a, a harsh point from the law, uh, sometimes he'll just he'll just look at the congregation for a minute, let him stew, right? Um, and and here here Jesus, his his silence really um, reveals first his faithfulness and his willingness and his control of the situation, but also it it must have just been this this terrible, painful contrast that caused the people to pause and reflect on what they were doing, right? Um, it must have been like uh, nails on a chalkboard to the ears of everyone there. So painful uh, that Caiaphas is the first one to break it. And he gets to the point and he really asks, are you the Christ? And in this question, um, you know, he really reveals how, how diabolical this whole trial is. Because this is what they really want to disprove. They want to disprove that Jesus is the Christ. They want to disprove that uh, he is the son of the blessed one. He's the son of God, because that is the truth that they cannot tolerate it. Um, uh, this is what they want to silence. This is what they want to be rid of, because Jesus cannot be the Christ, because they have to preserve the lie. That's the devil's great lie, that Jesus is not the Christ, that Jesus is not the son of God come to save the world, that Jesus doesn't save you. And, and the devil cannot stand the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, because that's what strips him of all of his power. That's what strips you know, what you uh, maybe very rightly called the anti-church of its power, uh, that, that, that they can't handle this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they want to disprove it, and they want to disprove it by getting him to admit it and then killing him. So he he asks him very directly then, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? But this time Jesus is not silent. This time he answers. Why does he answer mm-hmm. this question, and what is that answer he gives? Uh, yeah, so he, he doesn't hesitate to answer this question. He says, I am. Uh, and in this case, you know, he has to answer because because Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is going to confess the truth. Uh, Jesus is never going to deny who he is. We, we see that, you know, throughout the Gospels, everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus says is to demonstrate that truth, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. And so Jesus gives bold testimony before this court of liars. Um, he is going to say the only true thing that has been uttered that entire night. Um, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Uh, and he answers in, in a way that, that must have been uh, offensive to the hearers. And, and those who are kind of deep readers of the New Testament, um, when we hear Jesus say that ego a me, the I am statement, um, you know, he, he's claiming to be the I am that um, spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He's claiming to be the the Yahweh, the the Lord of uh, the people of Israel. Um, and we see that uh, this this is a truth 
and this is a testimony that throughout the entire ministry of Jesus is is echoed by by others, right? Um, first, we, we have God the Father saying multiple times uh, throughout the Gospels, this is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased, listen to him, right? We see this at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see this at Jesus's baptism. Uh, we see in John 12, once again, uh, Jesus uh, uh, prays that uh the name of the Father would be glorified as the Son of Man is lifted up, and the Father speaks. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it, right? This is also what the Scriptures confess, uh, that as, as Jesus goes about his ministry and he goes about his life, he is fulfilling the Scriptures. This is what John the Baptist died confessing, that, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and this is what is affirmed by Every miracle in the ministry of Jesus, every word preached and uttered by Jesus. And yet this is the truth that is totally unbearable to the opponents of the gospel, as Jesus says, I am. Uh, the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh, they will cling to any lie that they can, anything that they can grasp hold of to have an alternative to this truth. And Jesus tells them, that this is not some empty claim. Uh, he even accompanies his I am with a sign. Uh, he tells them what will happen. As it said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. You know, and, and this is a big statement because Jesus, Jesus is really um, telling this assembly who's actually in control, who actually has the authority. As he, as he talks about the, the last day, as he talks about his return, he says that he's going to come seated at the right hand of the power of the Father, and he will descend from heaven and, and power and authority and glory. And so really, who has the authority to judge whom here? Uh, he's not only the Christ, but he's also their divine judge. And though they um, uh, um, are going to subvert justice in whatever way they can to, to accomplish their means, he's going to accomplish justice. And though they do not acknowledge him as their divine judge, they will on the last day. They will uh, confess. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see Jesus makes his good confession, and that though the assembly is an assembly of lies, Jesus speaks the truth. And Jesus also makes it clear who is actually in control of the situation. He is. He's the Lord. He's in control, and, and, and he's there because he wants to be. And so he, he's not going to back down here. He's going to confess that he is the Christ, because that is the truth that frees us. That is the truth that saves us. That's the truth that we confess as the Holy Christian Church here on earth. And uh, um, here Jesus affirms it and speaks it now, mm. quite beautifully. Quite indeed. I mean, Jesus, again, in the midst of all this evil that is attacking Jesus and the unfaithfulness of Peter that's going to be on either side of this, Jesus does stand as a shining light of faithfulness here. And again, as you said, one who does this for us sinners. And and 
oh, we need to see that so much in, in this text. Pastor Danny, we've got about six minutes here, and the, the scene then devolves really quickly and in a quite ugly way from that confession of Jesus, the, the hatred of those who do not believe, the hatred of those who would rather hold to the lie becomes terribly evident. Take us into that final scene, how the high priest and the rest of the Sanhedrin react, and, and then particularly as, as we wrap things up this morning, to help us to see that faithfulness of Jesus shining through even in the midst of all this evil that's attacking. Yeah, so... Uh, Caiaphas hears Jesus makes his confession, and he rins his garments and says, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. And he calls upon the court to make its decision. Um, he calls this blasphemy, but it, it's the furthest thing from blasphemy. It's the truth. It's a good confession. Caiaphas calls for his verdict, and and once again, uh, this is this is not the the proper proper legal procedure. Um, uh, according to the Mishnah, capital cases um, uh, tried by the Sanhedrin, a verdict could only be passed in a second section that took place on a different day. Uh, but once again, they're they're not there to obey or follow the rules. The verdict. Um, had to come. It also had to be recorded and tabulated independently by two scribes. But here, you know, we see that this this whole trial, um, their their conception of justice is overthrown. But divine justice against sin is is poured out. Um, Jesus is once again he's he's the one who's come to bear the sins of the world, right? Uh, we, we see that uh, uh, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, though Jesus is, is truly completely innocent, and we can see this by the nature of this trial, we can see this how all of this uh, all comes together and plays out. Um, divine justice is being done uh, because the divine judgment of good sin is being poured out on Christ. Uh, Jesus is that unblemished lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And like every sacrifice that came before him, he is dying for someone else's sin. He's dying for your sin and my sin. But of course, as we see this, they, they all condemn him. They all say he deserves death. So in Isaiah 50, verse 6, uh, we, we read about this as Jesus says, I gave my back, or the, the Isaiah says, but about Jesus, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. And here we, we see this, this group of scribes and Pharisees, scribes and elders and priests, all in their official garb and their officious roles, um, going about their offices, and they dissolved into this this chaos, um, this 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 rowdy uh, um, bit of uh, mockery and beating and spitting, and all of their dignity and all of their roles, all the dignity that they enjoy, um, that they receive from the people. Here, that that goes out the window and they, they spit on him. They cover his face. They strike him. Um, when you're strike that, you know, you probably hear the, you know, think of a fisticuff, right? You think of a good solid punch. They, they say prophesy. They receive him with blows. Um, 
But here we see once again, after Jesus makes his good confession, once again, he's silent. No objection. Perfect submission. Perfect obedience. All to take away the sin of the world. Jesus stands here for you. He endures this for you so that you do not need to fear these rowdy assaults of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. We do not uh, we need to fear the anti-church and its assault against Christ, because Jesus here overcomes them by enduring their worst attacks. Uh, as this strikes Peter into terror, as we, we talked about a minute ago, we see that after the resurrection, it removes all fear. As his sins are forgiven and his Lord lives, he boldly confesses Jesus even unto death. And, and we can, too, uh, because we stand as those who have been forgiven by Christ. We stand as those who have received this gracious and loving work from Jesus. Uh, we should lose any doubt of God's love for us when we watch this, because here he demonstrates it so perfectly that he endures this for you. He bears this for you. And this is, this is such a sobering and joyful thing for us. Uh, it's hard to read, but it should give us comfort in knowing how much God cares for us. Pastor Jacob Dandy is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Pastor Dandy, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 14 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.